Hello everyone, welcome to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. My name is Avid Kahl, and I talk about how you can start, run, and sell a bootstrap business. This episode is called Price is Not Set in Stone, Strategies for Increasing Your Revenue. Let's get started. Here's the most profound lesson about pricing I've learned in many years of building businesses, is that you can always change your prices. You own your business and you can change everything about it. So most payment providers allow you to have an infinite number of plans anyway, and you can add and remove as many as you like at any given time. There's no reason to stick with what you initially conceived as good pricing. Don't hesitate to change the prices of your plans just because you picked an arbitrary number of dollars when you first launched a business. Keep in mind, though, that this can be very disruptive for your customers. So there are a few things to keep in mind there. So an important aspect is honest pricing and the perception of value. Never be sneaky about changing prices. Inform every customer who will be affected by this change. And if you offer a trial period for your product, make it clear when customers need to subscribe. So they can get the prices they were told they would get when they started their trial. If you raise prices for existing customers, inform them way in advance so they have a chance to commit or complain. Having people frantically scramble to offboard their data because they can't afford or don't want to afford your product anymore will create a lot of bad press. And it will sour the long-term relationships you so carefully built with your business. With enough value nurturing, customers will understand that a continuously maintained and updated SaaS product like your business will warrant a price increase at some point. Some might not like it and they will protest, but in most cases, it'll be a net benefit for your business and for your customers. You catch up on the value you deliver while they benefit from the additional resources that this revenue increase actually generates within your service. When we increased our prices by 50% at Feedback Panda after a year of running the business, we gave our customers a very clear notice up front with over a month to make up their mind if they wanted to lock in their current price by upgrading to a yearly subscription. And we also gave them a heads up and giving them a heads up and giving them choices worked very well for us and resulted in very few complaints. After all, we explained the why and the how of the price increase and complaining about something that is pretty much just straightforward honesty is fairly hard to pull off. So very few people, few people really did that. A few words about budgets and price sensitivity at this point. I think it's very important to keep in mind the budgets of your prospects, of your customers, because there likely is a ceiling to that as well. Even when you're selling to freelancers and other positions that determine their own budgets, you need to find out which leadership is involved and who makes these decisions and how flexible those budgets truly are. For our business, the budget of our customers was pretty clear as we sold to an audience that more often than not was severely financially limited. Online teachers at that point made 20, maybe 10 bucks an hour, depending on who they were teaching for and what skill level they were at. And they often would work two jobs as well. They would work like a in an actual brick and mortar school and then work from home. So they were effectively part-time freelancers making ends meet with a work from home job. We knew that we couldn't price our service very high and we found a good starting point to be 10 bucks a month. Initially, we, we had offered a $5 a month plan too, but most customers chose the 10 bucks plan. So we quickly retired the $5 option and a year later, we decided that the product had grown so much in value that we could increase the price to 15 bucks a month. 
It turned out that the budget of our audience could handle that price increase at that point, so it worked well. But sometimes what you sell doesn't fit existing budgetary categories, right? It just doesn't exist yet as a product. So customers might not know if they have a budget at all, if there is a ceiling or if they could stretch existing budgets to accommodate paying for your service. You won't know about this until you've talked to your prospective customers in several exploration conversations. Like you will not know about the presence of a budget until somebody actually is paying money for something. Price sensitivity is also different depending on your customer types. Early adopters buy the product that your service will provide once it's finished. Mainstream customers and late adopters, laggards, these kind of categories, buy the product you sell right now. So while you want to provide a maximum of value for your price to either group, you can get away with charging higher prices to the group that expects your product to grow into something bigger than it is at the moment they buy it. Just make sure not to abuse the trust. And I want to mention price boundaries and the fallacy of pricing too low too early as well at this point, because I've seen this over and over again. Early bootstrap business pricing is often way too low. Don't discount yourself. Like Just because you're starting a new business doesn't mean you have to scrape the bottom of the barrel. This leads to a big problem in the future. If you believe that raising prices is hard, but lowering them is easier, then choosing a low price in the beginning will prevent you from ever meaningfully increase your revenue through price adjustments. Pricing is also super strongly correlated with your positioning. If you position yourself as a professional tool used by professional people, you'll be able to charge more compared to being perceived as a fun distraction or like a tiny little addition to someone's day. You may reach fewer people, but the relationships you form with B2B customers are much stronger and more reliable than if you were to sell to a B2C market, where you have more customers with higher churn. So that is also a positioning question. Right? If you position yourself alongside other high-priced solutions, customers will accept paying more. And if you compete with low-priced products, your upper price boundaries will be perceived to be comparatively low, because that's just what people expect. And that brings me to one of the most important points here. Pricing is both always conversational and highly influenced by expectations. In general, pricing in a vacuum is quite the questionable approach. In the beginning, you likely don't have much customer data to anchor on, and that's to be expected. And it makes finding a working pricing model quite hard without reaching out to real people. So customer conversations will help you understand what might work and what might not. And talking to your customers allows you to find out if they are genuinely committed to eventually buying your product. Pricing feedback from people who wouldn't buy your product anyway is fairly useless and dangerous to follow. So suspect anyone who is saying, oh yeah, I would maybe pay a hundred bucks a month for this to be quite optimistic and not really willing to shell it out in the future. And honestly, when you, particularly when you're starting, you don't need commitment just yet, but you do need insight. You'll need to focus on the prospective customers who will share their expectations with you. You need to understand how they think about the value of software solutions like yours and what they've been working with and what they've experienced in the past. That'll heavily inform the real price boundaries. And you should also price the way that people are used to. If they pay per seat for many other tools that they use, you likely get more conversions offering that kind of pricing model too. If you introduce an unusual pricing model like API call-based prices in an industry that usually pays a flat fee for services, 
you'll have to spend more time actually educating your prospects why this is good for their use cases and their budgets. Many leads just won't materialize because once they see something novel and complicated, or they perceive it to be complicated at least, they'll go with what they already know. And I think the same goes for your overall price boundaries. Your customers will compare your solution to the tools that they already use, and they'll evaluate you against the tools or the position or the team that your service is supposed to replace. While this is mostly a positioning issue, your customer's prior experience plays into this a lot as well. The more you know about that, the better your messaging can be, and it can lead people to understand that your pricing is serious and useful for them. A word about moving up market, because I've been talking to lots of founders who think this is a really good strategy at almost all times. I believe that moving up market is a common strategy for SaaS businesses. You go after bigger and bigger customers, you find the bigger budgets and get your cut. And while this is a great strategy, when you have a mature company with a stable revenue stream, I don't think it's recommended while you're struggling to survive. There are many risks to what seems like a lucrative path, and I'm just going to talk about a couple of them. I feel that enterprise customers are quite dangerous beasts. Their purchasing processes are opaque, they take a long time, and they involve levels of commitment that you may not be able to make. If you start in a particular market, just try to stay there. Find more customers like the ones that you've already convinced to buy you. That'll be much easier as you already know how to sell to them, what the methods are, and how to market to people like them because you've already been doing it. And timelines are much longer in the enterprise B2B world. The complexity of the corporate sales process makes conversations take a long time and involve more people than a self-service subscription service that generates revenue at the click of a subscription button. You'll have to send emails, follow-ups, explanations, maybe even take a few people in your prospect's company through an extensive demo process. We only go up market if you know you can still run your business while you or someone in the company does this much more intense sales job compared to a self-service business. I actually had a nice conversation on Twitter this week. It was very interesting. A lot of people responded to a tweet that I sent out about um, the contact us for pricing button that so many B2B enterprise SaaS businesses or SaaS businesses that target this kind of um, market have on their website. And it is such a strong psychological thing. Like this button scares away every single bootstrapper. Like in this conversation, I had dozens of people tell me that once they see this button, once they don't see actual prices, but once they see a contact us for pricing button, you just close the page. They exit right away. And it's not just because these businesses are usually on the higher price point. That is that is an expectation that plays into it. But it's, all, it's also suggesting that you will need to interact with these people quite a bit, not just for pricing, but also for other things, for integrations, for actually setting it up, like getting a demo, having their engineers work on your product to, to figure out how to set up the integration that they supposedly provide. So it kind of suggests a lot of high-touch work with what is supposedly just one more dependency. And I think as bootstrappers, we're so focused on building things with really, really low-touch dependencies that if you communicate in your pricing that it will be a high-touch interaction, you scare away the people who really just want to use your product as a low-touch integration, as one of many dependencies into their product. So that, as a result, if you go into enterprise B2B, 
still offering no regular SaaS pricing tiers, like 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month, 300 bucks a month, which kind of sounds more like enterprise-y um, price models, might actually be a drawback. Because at a certain point, enterprise B2B businesses don't expect you to actually put your price out there anymore. They expect a high touch, both for the sales conversation, for the integration, for customer service. They actually expect a lot of handholding that you will have to do with some department in a much bigger business. So if you're willing to do this, great. But by actually having prices, like real prices still on your pricing page, you will not get these kind of customers or it will be a much more complicated, maybe even confusing situation for them. Just keep that in mind. And I kind of want to talk about the opposite of this, like subscription tiers, like the normal kind of pricing model that we've come to expect in the bootstrapped and just in the hacker, in the maker SaaS world. If you have a very clear-cut service offering, then your product likely allows you to serve the same kind of customers with the same exact price. And while this is great for communicating the value of your product, you're probably also leaving money on the table. Um, at Feedback Panda, we started our paid monthly subscription offering by having a 5 and a $10 plan. Set that before. The cheaper option had a few limitations around the amounts of data that our customers could store in their databases, while our more expensive plan had no restrictions. It was essentially an unlimited plan. From day one, most of the people chose to purchase the unlimited plan, even though they wouldn't reach the numbers that exceeded the limits of the cheaper plan. For months. I attribute this behavior to the fact that we named the more affordable plan basic and the more expensive one professional. And our customers were teachers who took great pride in being experts in their field. So their own psychology made them gravitate towards the more expensive option to retain that self-perception of being a professional. And I don't think, having said that, that tiers are not just tricks to make customers pay more for the same service. They also have to make sense. And people understand mind games, right? And they will harbor very negative feelings towards you if you if they learn that you're trying to trick them. If you offer tiers, make them comprehensive and make them make sense. Set usage limits, lock away functionality, but always root those choices in business-related grounds. Coercing customers to upgrade to a higher tier without a justified need is not going to help you build a positive relationship with them. And don't make your pricing too complex to understand. A simple pricing structure allows you to plan better and will lead to fewer surprises, both for you as the owner of the business and for your customers. Offering three tiers is what seems to work well in most cases because that's just a nice amount of information that people can actually deal with. Only very specific kinds of tools get away with complicated pricing structures. Those tools usually, they're just highly technical and they work at large scale. So that different use cases actually warrant diverging ways of paying for this kind of service. A popular strategy is to offer a free tier with heavily enforced limits. This, I guess, is called freemium. It allows you to, or allows your customers to make a habit out of using your service before they have to commit to a purchase, which often helps convincing prospects of the value of your product. So if you offer such a free tier, you'll have to pay extra attention to your prices because they need to make sense for those likely price-sensitive customers or else they'll just migrate away when they start reaching the limits at which you expect them to convert. So the jump should not be too crazy else they'll only use the free tier and actually try to bend their usage into being able to retain 
this free tier for as long as possible. We had a, yeah, like I, I wouldn't call our $5 a month plan free tier, but it was almost that. It was quite cheap. It was 50% of the price that other customers paid. So the people that we had on this plan, we, we kind of grandfathered them in, even though we removed the plan. So we still had like 20 or 30 people for six months that were still on this plan. And many of them went out of their way to delete old records in the database as to not hit the limits that we set for this plan, even though it was just five bucks a month. But they would spend hours deleting old records instead of teaching one more hour, essentially getting like 10 or 20 bucks uh, in, in salary and actually pay for the 10 bucks a month uh, subscription plan for Feedback Panda. They didn't. they rather spent the time deleting data so they could save $5. And those customers will be quite prevalent in the freemium model. So be aware that this might happen to your business. Let's look at intention behind the price. Um, this is one of the, another kind of perspective that you need to take when you look at prices. Because in an early stage of your business, just ask yourself the question, what is your price supposed to do? Right? What is this particular price at this particular time supposed to accomplish? Are you trying to get established first? Are you trying to get your foot in the door? Because your very first customers are opportunities for validation and amplification. You'll price differently for those customers than for later customers. And honestly, just deliver custom prices to the early ones and then reevaluate that kind of stuff later if you're trying to get established. But if you're trying to maximize revenue, just look at the unit economics of your existing customers and find ways to segment them that are likely to be into segments that are likely to be highly profitable and offer the more expensive plans with more functionalities and better guarantees. That is, an, if you intend to maximize revenue, that's the way I would go. And at any point in your business, just be aware of the fact that your prices are in motion. Don't set them in stone. Like Take it as a starting point. Don't treat it like a fixed decision because it doesn't have to be. Just like you hope to improve your product, you should look at your prices and try to improve them as well. At Feedback Panda, we increased our prices by 50%. One year after going to market, we softened that blow because it's quite substantial, even though it was just from 10 to $15, still 50%, right? So we softened that by simultaneously introducing a referral system. And we had great success with that in two ways. Our monthly revenue grew as customers agreed to pay more for the monthly plans and they started recruiting people to actually get a month for free. So revenue went up and we received a large influx of cash from those customers who chose to lock in their prior pricing by committing to the discounted yearly plan before the deadline, which was the 31st of December. So of 2018, I guess. Well, that was a scary moment because we didn't know what was going to happen. We were glad to have experimented and actually increased our prices at this point because nothing shows that your customers value your product more than when they chose and choose to pay more for it than they did before. So regarding pricing, I've asked on Twitter if other founders have questions regarding this issue, and I got a lot of responses, and I'll answer those questions after this. This podcast is sponsored by Balsamic, makers of Balsamic wireframes, everybody's favorite low-fidelity wireframing tool. I've been a fan of that business and its founder, Peldi, Ever since I first listened to the Indie Hackers podcast episode with him back in March 2019. And for those of you who want to listen to that, it's episode 85 of the Indie Hackers podcast. And it's very insightful. Peldi's a great founder and he really cares about empowering sustainable long-term businesses. And with Balsamic, he built exactly that kind of business. 
the, the wireframing tool itself is a fantastic tool, especially for product founders who have lots of ideas for their apps, but can't afford or don't want to hire a UX designer just yet. Balsamic is quite easy. It's as easy as PowerPoint, just drag and drop elements on the page and you'll have the screens for your app designed in no time. You can then work on these kind of things with a developer or even validate them with clients or investors or whatever you think before writing any code. And Balsamic is also a bootstrap company and they love this podcast. And because they're well-known in our community, they've decided to donate their airtime to you, listeners of this show. Um, during the past weeks, we've collected applications among the listeners of this podcast and we started, um, yeah, we collected them and we, from, from next episode on, you'll find out who our guest sponsors are. If you want to say hi to the wonderful people at Balsamic, just visit balsamic.com slash go slash bootstrap dash founder. And on that page, you can also find a promo code for Balsamic, which I recommend checking out. So again, that's balsamic.com, balsamic uh, with a Q, slash go slash bootstrap dash founder. All right, time to answer a few questions. One topic was asked for the most, actually, and that was initial pricing. What should be the initial launch price? What goes into this decision? So thanks, Batuan and Nicholas, for the question. I think it's hard to estimate the value of a product without knowing just how much it's worth to a real customer. You can do a lot of market analysis and come up with a lot of theories, but in the end, the decision, if your product is worth it, lies with your customer and their choice to purchase it. And until... They've looked at your product, its pricing page, and then made a choice, you won't have any data to go on. You can only really make a guess, an educated guess. And I mentioned a couple things earlier to anchor that guess. And here's what we did for Feedback Panda. We looked at the amount of money that an online teacher would earn in an hour, and we priced our product to be affordable by just teaching one more hour per month. We knew that budgets were tight, and we priced on the lower boundary of that one hour salary. And after we had some data on the value perception of our customers, we then increased the price. That's how we handled this. And talking about value perception, it's a super hard thing to envision when you don't have anybody using the product. So get people to use your product and figure out what kind of value and how much of it they get from it. For example, if you're serving freelance designers with a SaaS and it saves them two hours every week, that's two more billable hours for every one of your customers that they can actually charge to their clients. So if they charge 50 uh, bucks an hour, that's $400 a month for every single of your customers. Of course, that's not the price they'll be ready to pay, right? They're not going to pay 400 bucks a month for your SaaS product, but it gives you some indication that maybe $40 a month would be a pricing tier that some of them are willing to pay because it's clear that your product provides so much more value compared to a price. Yet, it's still 40 bucks a month, right? It's, it's not super low priced. It's actually a meaningful price that you can work with. And like I said in the beginning, your pricing is always and completely under your control. You can give a custom price to every single initial user of your product if that helps you figure out the best initial price and the flexibility of people's budgets. So let me try and give you something actionable here. Figure out what other comparable solutions your prospects already pay for. Stay within those boundaries and try to provide as much value as your customer uh, for, for your customers as possible from the start. They will compare your product to others. So if you're unsure about selling an unfinished service, give them an early adopter discount that kind of puts it somewhere in the middle of this, this average. But 
don't underprice your service completely. It's supposed to be a business that works for you after all. So I hope this helps. Thank you for the question. Carol would love to hear my opinion about cost versus value versus esteem pricing. Now that's interesting. Aspirational pricing or what is also called esteem pricing is a highly interesting concept to me. And it's very closely linked to your whole positioning strategy in a business. I think this works super well in niches where other products are already pricing in an aspirational way. Conversely, it's quite hard to establish esteem pricing in the market saturated with low-cost products. Because no pricing model really exists in a vacuum, and unless you're creating a new category, I guess. Those are fair game, and until they then actually start getting low-cost low cost competition who compete with you on pricing alone. And I think that's, that brings me to the main point of this. Esteem pricing or aspirational pricing works best if you have a clear moat. In SaaS, that's usually a strong network effect or a distribution mode like exclusive partnerships and integrations. And if your business has this unfair advantage that is impossible to copy, then esteem pricing sounds like a good idea. If your business is in a niche where it's quite easy to be copied and you don't really have anything to defend it, you need to price differently. And I'm honestly not a fan of cost pricing for bootstrap businesses, like which is something better fitted for large infrastructure businesses like AWS and the like. They're platforms and they serve everybody, no matter how big or small, so their pricing needs to reflect that. But bootstrap businesses usually sell to well-defined audiences with fairly clear budgetary boundaries, so you should price not for cost alone. And that kind of brings us to the middle ground, which in all other cases is value-based pricing. And I see this to be a very successful model with one important component following along the value metric of your customers. If you're tracking a metric that when it goes up means that your customers is making more money and, or saving more time, then monetize along that number and align your value-based pricing with that. Great examples here are Stripe, who monetize along the revenue of your business, which is the ultimate value metric. And the more money you make, the more money they make. So it's fairly clear that this is a value metric for them. Intercom is a more instructive example here, I think. They charge along the number of daily active users. And their reasoning is the more users load your website and hence their customer service widget, which is in integrated into that, the more success you must have. So they charge you more. And unless you run a freemium pricing model, they're absolutely right to do that, right? The, the more users you have, the more users pay for your product. So you make more money. And so Intercom makes more money too. And I think that every value-based pricing model should do exactly that. Charge along the value metric. So thanks, Carol, for this very interesting question. Corey asked about um, my opinion about grandfathering and how I define it. I think that might be a trick question somewhere in there, but I'm still going to answer it. Earlier, I talked about how we increased our prices at Feedback Panda from $10 to $15 a month. And I also said that we gave our customers a choice to lock in their old price by purchasing a yearly subscription at the lower price. What I didn't say was that we promised that this was going to be a forever discount. If they locked it in then, they would never have to pay more than what was $110 a year for a product. And at that point which is now yeah, two years ago, that's what I understood grandfathering to be. You allow your existing customers to keep the price level they joined with indefinitely. My opinion on this has changed a bit. 
I still recommend rewarding your early users for their trust when you increase prices. I would still let them keep their old prices, but not forever. Maybe one year, maybe for six months, but I think that a business relationship in the membership economy that we live in now, which is recurring revenue, long-term relationships, transactional relationships with customers, is a two-sided exchange. And there's no reason that you, as the provider of an ever-improving service, should undersell it to a sizable amount of customers just because they've been with you for a while. Give them a discount if you must, sure, but don't sell them a product of the present at the price of a product of the past. Your business has to live, thrive, and grow in the here and now, and a customer who gets value from a product here and now that constantly improves even will understand that this is reflected in the price. And if they don't, they might not be a good customer for you, and you should probably fire them because they're holding you back. So thank you, Corey, for asking about grandfathering. I hope this is insightful. All right. Roman wonders about what indicators exist when a service is overpriced or underpriced. And that's a funny one too. Because to me, clear indicators that a price mismatch is happening is first the obvious lack of customers and second an avalanche of customer service throughput. And funny enough, both of these can happen no matter if the price is too high or too low. Because when there's a mismatch, what you effectively see is a clash of expectations with the reality of your service. Someone expected your product to be something else than it actually is, and the price you put out there is part of the confusion. If your product is priced too low, but it turns out to be too good, people will wonder what's wrong with it. If your product is priced too high, but it turns out to be not good enough, people will think you're scamming them, and customers who buy products that have bargain-level pricing are usually quite demanding when it comes to customer support, which is the reason why we removed the $5 pricing level at Feedback Panda. It was too much work for too little revenue. And customers who buy a high price product but don't get enough value from it will complain a lot as well, demanding more features and help from you, the founder. So the only thing that will help you here, like in almost all other cases where you're not sure about something, is to reach out to your customers and ask for their honest opinion. And here's the important part when you do this. Listen to their story. But do not defend your choices and do not defend your prices. Just listen and take notes. Do this often enough and you'll see a discernible trend, either too low, too high, or something is mismatched. And then adjust your pricing and maybe even more importantly, your messaging and your overall positioning. Because that's where they got confused in the first place. Thank you, Roman, for this question. I hope this helps. There were a few more questions and I'll be answering them on Twitter um, thank you so much, everybody who reached out with a question about pricing. I'm glad to share my thoughts on this very critical topic. And I can't wait to see what questions you'll come up um, next week for next week's topic. So until then, thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Avid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. And you can check out the blog at thebootstrapfounder.com. If you have any questions about this episode, reach out on Twitter or send an email to arvid at thebootstrapfounder.com. If you want to support me in the Bootstrap Founder podcast, please leave a rating in the review on Apple Podcasts wherever you subscribe to it. It'll help other founders and founders-to-be find the podcast and learn more about starting, running, and selling their bootstrap businesses. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.